It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 404 for August 3rd, 2014. This week, are Chromebooks viable alternatives these days? Three years after Google released these internet-based computers, they are beginning to look like they might work for lots of people. And in short circuits, Android phone and tablet users are facing a scary-looking threat that may not be so scary after all. Congress says it is now okay to jailbreak your phone. And Facebook has released its new messenger service, but only for some devices. After writing about how Chromebooks are replacing iPads in some schools, I began to wonder if these little internet computers are really viable candidates for general use now. If you want the short answer, it's this. It depends. You'd probably like more than that, though, so stick with me, and we'll consider the computer that's nothing more than a browser. This week's issue is a little unusual in that it's essentially a one-trick pony, all about Chromebooks, but we're going to be considering that topic from several viewpoints. Last week, I noted that Chromebooks have started to displace Apple's iPads in some schools because they have keyboards, because they're easier for schools to manage, and because they cost less. But if that's all they have going for them, they fall short of the mark. When Chromebooks were introduced in May of 2011, I didn't think much of them. After all, how useful could the computer be if you couldn't install any software and if it depended entirely on web-based programs to do everything? At the time, that was a valid point, but things change, particularly over three years. Three years is a lifetime in hardware terms. Several lifetimes in Internet years. So it was time to take a look. I acquired a Samsung Chromebook 2 with a 13-inch screen. The CPU is essentially the same as what you might find in a smartphone, and that gave me some pause. It also has only 4 gigabytes of memory, with 3.5 gigabytes usable, and just a mere 16 gigabytes of storage. So I had visions of maple syrup in January. I made sure to buy from a vendor that would allow me to return it if the Chromebook turned out to be a colossal disappointment. Well, it's still here. There are two small disappointments. First, this Chromebook has no touch-sensitive screen. Some manufacturers offer models with touch screens, and I'm sure that I'd like this one better if I could use the screen the way I do on a Windows 8 tablet or a Nexus 7. And second, Samsung went just a little cheap on the screen. The size, 13-inch diagonal, and the resolution, a widescreen 1920 by 1080 are just fine. The problem, though, is viewing angles. Viewing off-center horizontally, no problem there. But changing the vertical viewing angle just a little bit results in a dim, washed-out image. I might wish for better, but I can live with the screen. Prices are all over the place. The most expensive Chromebook is the Pixel by Google, 
At $1,300 to $1,500, it costs more than a Microsoft Surface computer, and the Surface would be a lot more capable. But most Chromebooks sell for $200 to $400, and that puts them in the same price range as low-end notebook computers. The Chrome operating system uses the Linux kernel and a Google Chrome web browser along with an integrated media player. Many of the apps require internet connectivity, but some can be used in offline mode. One of the most impressive features of Chromebooks is the boot time takes about seven or eight seconds, seven or eight seconds from power off to the login screen. And after you provide your password, the machine will be ready to use in another one to two seconds. Instead of traditional word processing, spreadsheet and communications applications, users add browser apps from the Chrome Web Store. Google says that their multi-layer security architecture eliminates the need for antivirus software. Many USB devices, such as cameras, mice, external keyboards, and flash drives are all supported, and the Chromebook keyboard has a surprising number of shortcuts. The keys are reasonably sized, and they have sufficient travel, so that when they're pressed, they provide a reasonable typing experience. Now, here's an interesting bit of information from an article by Salvador Rodriguez in the Los Angeles Times. During the first 11 months of 2013, more than 1,750,000 Chromebooks were sold in the United States. Two points stand out here. First, that was 21% of the U.S. commercial business-to-business laptop market. And second, during the same period in 2012, Chromebooks sold less than half a million units and therefore they had a negligible market share. Whether this is a trend or a blip remains to be seen. Maybe you think all applications on a Chromebook require internet connectivity. I did, but that's wrong. Maybe you thought there's only a limited number of applications that'll run on a Chromebook. That's what I thought. Well, that's right, but the limit is a lot larger than I thought it was. There are literally hundreds of applications, some mainstream and some esoteric, that will run on Chromebooks. If you must have Skype, sorry, not available, on a Chromebook. Bitstrips and Pandora are. Google Earth, oddly, is not available. However, Google Maps is, and it provides views from Google Earth. The Kobo and Kindle readers are available, but not Nook or Aldeco. If a particular application is essential to you, try a Google search for whatever your essential application is and the word Chromebook. That'll let you know if what you need is really available. I was surprised to find a free version of Snagit is available on Chromebooks, Although it has nowhere near the number of features that you'll find on the paid Windows version, it does allow the user to add arrows, rectangles, ovals, and text, and the resulting image is stored in PNG format to your Google Drive. You could view the New York Times website in the Chrome browser, of course, but the screen's size and resolution might be inadequate for your needs. The newspaper has created an app that is optimized for Chromebooks. You'll see an image on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Now, Google says that users of Chromebooks don't need to bother with antivirus applications. And you might wonder if this is simply marketing hyperbole, also known formally by its abbreviation, BS, 
It's not, but the answer isn't quite that simple. Chrome, the operating system used by Chromebooks, is based on Linux. And as you know, Linux can be compromised with certain variants of cross-platform malware. But Chrome isn't plain Linux, and the implementation is such that it's difficult to install anything that would cause a problem. Difficult, not impossible. All of the default applications on a Chromebook are cloud-based. Should any malware find its way onto a Chromebook, you could simply reset it to factory defaults and start over. Of course, that would mean having to configure and customize the device and to reinstall any local apps that you downloaded. Fortunately, though, the Chromebook has a process that will allow it to recognize malicious changes in most cases and eliminate the problem the next time you boot the computer. Some apps can be installed and used even when the device isn't connected to the Internet. These include photo programs, text editors, games, and more. A lot more. Of course, if you restrict yourself to installing just the applications that you obtain from the Chrome store, it's unlikely that you'll ever see any malware. But I consider antivirus applications kind of the way I consider vaccinations. They may not entirely eliminate the possibility that any one person or machine will be infected, but the overall health of the community is better when everybody, or every machine, is inoculated. Still, if you look for antivirus or anti-malware applications for Chromebooks, you won't find any. So let's consider Chromebook security a little more deeply. In a paper written at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, students Catherine Fang, Deborah Hainus, and Yuzi Zheng characterized the operating system as uncommonly secure, but they note that certain system defaults weaken security. Chromebook buyers exist at both ends of the user community. Inexperienced people who use the Chromebook as their primary computer and can be assumed to have little knowledge of security, as well as highly experienced people who see Chromebooks as capable, portable devices and fully understand the security implications of the operating system's various security settings. Because of this, the very people who need the most help with security are the ones least likely to get it. For example, Chrome security is strengthened by an auto-update process and by what's called verified boot. Chrome has the least obtrusive automatic update yet devised, but it happens only at boot time, because many novice users will just close the case instead of powering the system off. Their Chromebooks could run for months between boot times. Experienced users will know enough to restart the system regularly. The verified boot process is designed to eliminate malware even if an attack of some sort managed to install it. Each Chromebook actually has two root partitions. The computer compares the partitions at boot time and will boot from the first partition under most circumstances, but it can also automatically restore the boot partition from that secondary partition if something has changed. The MIT researchers explain it this way. 
Recall that the goal of verified boot is to ensure correctness of the currently running code. Because this correctness is only checked on boot, there are many attacks which exploit the situation in which the user does not shut down the computer after it has been attacked. In addition, only the firmware and signing key are guaranteed against rollbacks. The kernel is not. So, if the user doesn't boot the computer regularly, and this is a process that takes less than 10 seconds, a system that has been successfully attacked will remain compromised. And there's another problem. By default, the Chromebook will ask for a password only when it boots, not when it's awakened from sleeping. This is easy to change, but an inexperienced user who doesn't understand security threats would likely be unaware that the option even exists, much less know where to find the setting and change it. Although files are located on the computer when they're being used, they are also stored on Google Drive. That means if the computer is lost or stolen, the files are still available. But it doesn't protect files on the computer. If somebody steals an unlocked Chromebook, all of the files on the computer and all of the files in the user's Google Drive account are vulnerable. The developers have made a significant effort to keep data secure, though. The thief who steals a locked Chromebook and cannot determine the user's password will find only encrypted data on the device. The computer can have more than one account, and individual users can see only their data, because Chromebooks have no concept of an administrative user who has access to all data on the system. Some users will be concerned about storing data on a server that's accessible via the Internet. Well, that's a reasonable concern. Inattentive users who accidentally reveal their passwords for their Google accounts or create passwords that are easy to guess would make all of their stored data accessible to an attacker. After all, phishing for logon credentials is a lot easier than stealing a user's computer or decrypting protected data. So the two most important steps a Chromebook user can take, after creating a strong password, of course, are requiring a password when the computer wakes from sleep and booting more frequently. The researchers conclude that the fundamental security design of Chrome OS is solid, and it's clear that the system was designed with security in mind. As data becomes more frequently digitized, they say, security becomes increasingly important. Chrome OS rises to this challenge by making privacy guarantees about both code and data. First, they say, verified boot ensures that code is correct. And second, a data partition with encryption ensures that the data is safe. Auto-update with two root partitions is a good idea, not only for backup, they say, but also for security, because it minimizes the window of vulnerability. So clearly, Google has done a lot to ensure security. But your internal security system is still needed. Just because it's nearly impossible for malware to be installed on a Chromebook doesn't mean that users face no threats. It is up to the user, regardless of any operating system, whether it's Windows, the Mac OS X, or Linux, or Chrome, to use the wetware that's installed between their ears to evaluate threat levels. If you receive a message that asks for your bank account number, social security ID, and password, well, you should know enough not to provide that.
No reputable organization will ever ask for this kind of information by email. And while we're on the subject of passwords, make sure your Google account has a long, strong password, one that can't easily be guessed. If you choose to use a Chromebook, you are automatically safer than someone who's using Windows, or OS X, or Linux. But threats remain. Bad things can still happen to you and to your computer. So is a Chromebook for you? The most important consideration in buying any piece of hardware is whether it runs the software you need. Second, possibly, is whether the device is physically comfortable to use. Whether a Chromebook will be a good choice for you depends on what you do and how you want to do it. For example, I started writing this section of the report on a remote location at lunchtime. I used a generic text editor on the Chromebook and I saved the file to Google Drive. That meant I could continue editing and writing later on a Chromebook, on a notebook computer, on the desktop, or on any computer anywhere in the world that had an internet connection. Chromebooks are incredibly light, fast-booting, and quite a bit larger than most netbooks, which have largely fallen out of favor. Although you can use the guest account that Chromebooks provide, you'll be a lot more satisfied if you create a Google account and use it. Of course, if you have a Gmail account already, that's all you need. Those who rely on specific applications might find Chromebooks to be unacceptable. You can't run Outlook. You can't run Word or Excel or Photoshop or Skype or any other program that has an explicit installer. There are, however, extensions and apps that provide similar functionality to that provided by many desktop applications. For example, because LastPass is a browser extension, you can still use it to manage passwords, and most of the extensions that run in the Chrome browser will be just fine on a Chromebook, because the browser, after all, is what it's all about. Uh, just don't plan to use Firefox, or Internet Explorer, or Opera, or Maxthon. It is called a Chromebook for a reason. If you wonder whether Chromebooks can use thumb drives, external hard drives, and secure digital cards, the answer generally is yes. In most cases, you'll need a micro SD card if you go that route, and USB ports are generally included for thumb drives, mice, and external hard drives. Most Chromebooks have a better keyboard than netbooks, they run for many hours on a battery charge, and they update themselves better than Linux, Apple, or Windows machines. Another consideration has to be how comfortable you are in storing all of your work files on the Internet. Chromebooks have very little storage space. That said, though, I plugged in a micro SD card, and storage space is no longer a consideration for me. And, of course, for email... Gmail is the only game in town. You can't install another email application if you prefer not to use Gmail. After all that, the answer to my opening question about whether Chromebooks are viable alternatives to other devices is still, it depends. But maybe I've provided sufficient information that you'll know what questions to ask as you consider the alternatives and the possibilities.
short circuits. A recently discovered security flaw that affects Android devices will be patched quickly, but owners of older devices may remain vulnerable. The flaw was discovered by Blue Box Security. That's the same group that found a flaw last year, so clearly they understand the system. The new flaw could allow information to be stolen from millions of devices. Now, Blue Box says that all Android devices, version 2.1 and later, that would mean starting in 2010, and up to but not including KitKat 4.4, that's the current version, have a flaw that means the package installer signatures are not properly validated. The operating system automatically accepts apps that carry specific vendor IDs. Now this sounds like a terribly serious flaw, and in some ways it is. But it's a terribly serious flaw that carries with it limited exposure. Apps that Google includes in the Play Store are thoroughly vetted. Because Google vouches for apps from their own store, the risk of obtaining a bad app from the store is tiny. So if you download and install apps from elsewhere, you need to be careful. Bluebox puts it this way, and I quote, An attacker can create a new digital identity certificate, forge a claim that the identity certificate was issued by a trusted vendor, and sign the application in a way that appears to contain a trusted certificate. When the Android operating system installs the application, it will recognize the good signature and will then skip validating the app. Bluebox notified Google about the problem in April, waited until now to make the information public, so that Google could distribute a patch to manufacturers. Some of the manufacturers have already released the patches. Others haven't. And keep in mind, the oldest devices probably won't ever be patched. So the bottom line, particularly for owners of older Android devices, is to avoid installing any app that doesn't come from the Play Store. Stick to the safe side of the street, and you'll probably not be in danger. There's a link to more information from the TechBiter Worldwide website. be the highlight of the legislative session, the U.S. House has agreed with the Senate on legislation that would make it legal for mobile phone owners to unlock or jailbreak their phones so that they can switch carriers without having to buy a new phone. Current legislation makes jailbreaking phones illegal, and consumers who do so could be fined up to half a million dollars. Apparently, if something is both deeply unpopular and relatively trivial in nature, though, the House and the Senate can find ways to compromise on legislation. The practice of unlocking phones was legal until last year because of an exemption to copyright legislation. Some cellular carriers even offered to unlock phones when customers changed from one service to another. The new law, though, will pave the way for people to make changes themselves or to hire others to do it for them. The president says he'll sign the legislation, 
which is called the Unlocking Consumer Choice and Wireless Competition Act. Facebook users can run two applications to perform the tasks that one used to do. This is called progress. It's not a surprise, though, because Facebook announced the change in April. If you have an Apple or Android tablet or phone, you'll be forced to change next week. Messages from Facebook, though, might confuse desktop users of the service. Those who use Facebook on a desktop system will not be required to use the new Messenger service. In fact, they can't. It doesn't yet exist for desktops. Users of certain other devices, Windows phones, for example, will be able to continue using the single application. Facebook rolled the new service out in Europe first, starting in April, and the company says that results have been good there. The new application automatically picks up all of your Facebook contacts, so setup is really easy. It does add some functionality, such as internet-based phone calls, group chat, photos, and short videos. Facebook says our goal is to focus development efforts on making Messenger the best mobile messaging experience possible and avoid the confusion of having separate Facebook mobile messaging experiences. Messenger is used by more than 200 million people every month and we'll keep working, Facebook says, to make it an even more engaging way to connect with people. About 20% of Facebook's customer base is already using Messenger. You'll still see message notifications inside Facebook, but you'll then have the option of using Messenger to view and respond to the message. Additional changes will be coming. Facebook is in the process of acquiring WhatsApp. That's another service that provides internet-based messaging. Isn't progress just peachy? <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.